Welcome back to Music Industry 360. This is Randall Foster from Symphonic, and it's my distinct pleasure to welcome my good friend Scott Welch here today on the podcast. So <clears throat> Scott is uh, a gentleman I've known for a long time and uh, have seen him through many iterations of his involvement in the music business. He's always on to something cool and new every time we talk. And he he's kind of comes from a background that's, I, I, I think, incredibly impressive. Um, Scott started as an artist manager, managing and working with the likes of Alanis Morissette, Leanne Rhymes, Steve Perry, Paula Abdul, Collective Soul, CNC Music Factory, and a number of other incredible artists. Together, his artists have sold uh, more than 75 million records which is pretty incredible. Um, currently, he is also doing a lot of work with regards to technology and in the music space as an advisor for Soundstripe and single music and is uh, on the board of directors for Musicians on Call, which is an incredible nonprofit that brings live and recorded music to the bedsides of patients and healthcare facilities. So, Scott, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Randall. I guess I was the only last guy you could get, right? Everybody else said no, so you got stuck with me today. Is that what happened? <laughs> quite, quite the contrary, sir. Quite the contrary. You, uh, you know, you've got such an incredible history in this business, and you and I have known each other here for a good long time in yeah. in the Nashville space. Um, but you know, I think you're a, a really multifaceted guest, as we don't often have people who are experts in artist management, but also so um, ha have an acute understanding and knowledge of the tech sector and the and really the convergence of technology and music and and where that meets. So I think you're the perfect guest for this. And, and no, you're not the last guest. We have many more coming after you. Um, Good. So wanting to jump into it, um, obviously, you know, I know you got your start in management, unless there's something I'm missing prior to management. But can you give us a can yeah. you give us an overview of your early days in music? You know, what involved, what really motivated you to pursue music? Um, yeah. and, and, and how did you get to that moment where you were a, a fantastic artist manager? So my dad was military. We moved all over the world. And he got stationed in California when I started high school. And um he was one of he was flying overseas and so i was one of the first kids and they wrote out a real pioneer stereo component stereo that he brought back from japan so a lot of music at my house all the time we lived about an hour outside of san francisco so went to a lot of shows in san francisco in the late 70s and kind of got addicted to music so i thought i was going to go to law school and um do entertainment law so i went to college and i hated i hated the law i hated it so i started hanging out with bands uh, i was an engineer i started out as a sound engineer i got my union card kind of realized all the girls hung out with bands which was probably a good thing in those days and uh went on the road in the late 80s with a lot of the hair metal bands like quiet riot and faster pussycat and Metallica and Van Halen as a production manager, drive the t-shirt truck, tour manager, that sort of stuff. And decided at some point in time that I didn't want to be on the road forever. So a, a business manager that I had become friends with said, there's these guys that are managing a girl and they don't, they aren't really managers or radio promotion guys. Could you help them out? And it was Paula Abdul. 
And so that was kind of my first music client as, you know, quote, as a manager. And uh, after a couple of years, two years, she fired them. And she said to me, you know, look, you're probably not ready to do this by yourself. I'm going to go get another manager. Would you come along? I went, yeah. And so I was really fortunate. She hired a guy named Bob Cavallo. Bob managed Earth, Wind and & Fire and Prince, who are all of Purple Rain years. And I mentored under him. I was so fortunate. I got to learn so much of the business under him. So we started a, man- a management company. And some of our first clients was the Goo Dolls. And we had... Steve Perry, and we had Paul and Earth, Wind, and Fire, and I signed Atlantis, and then we signed Green Day and Seal, and we kind of built the company that way. Wow, that's it. That's incredible. I I didn't know that you'd started with Paula, and obviously um, teaming up with such a legend. I, I imagine that you learned a great deal in those early days. Yeah. Bob taught me a lot. He, you know, he taught me that one rule as an artist manager, you can lead him, you can lead him to water, but you can't stop him from jumping in and drowning. And as a manager, you learn that way that you, you can only, you can only show them the way they don't always take it. That's awesome. What did you love most about management? I mean, it had to be exciting to, you know, I, I'm, I remember Alanis's first record. I remember the excitement around that and all of that. Yeah, I think the excitement was when the artist calls you, hey, I just finished something in the studio. Why don't you come hear it? And you get to hear something for the first time and you go and it knocks you out. And then you before long, the whole world's heard it. And that's, I think, the thing that's most exciting. Being there first, being being the one to help usher it through to, to help it succeed. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always been, I was the kid that would stand in line to go to a concert and be up against the barricade for Kiss and ACDC. And so I still get that buzz in my stomach when the band's getting ready to go on stage. Well, that's that's so exciting. So you did the management thing full time. At what point did you start pivoting more into your uh, advisory role that, that, you know, I think yeah, you're doing so as much we, as managing at this point? Yeah, so we, um, the management company merged with a film and television company that managed Ellen DeGeneres and Will Ferrell and uh, a group of artists like that. And it became, it became big. It was called Mosaic. And these two guys came to see me who were Stanford grads and they had this idea for a ticketing company. And I had just been through a situation with one of my clients where she was complaining about the fact that how come none of the fans can get any of the good seats. And it was the guys that had StubHub and no one ever heard of secondary ticketing, but I was fascinated by it. So I came on board as an advisor, put some money in and we we, we went off and running. And I realized kind of the same skill set that you manage artists, you could manage entrepreneurs with. So I had signed a, a country artist here in Nashville and our my partner went off to run Hollywood records and I just didn't want to I didn't want to live in LA anymore. And so I sold my part of the business and moved to Nashville. And it was during the time when the record business was awful. 2003, four, five, six, you know, business was bad in those days. And so um I started to really be interested in the technology side and I started talking to someone and it led to something else. And, you know, now there's five or six things that I'm doing that are based in that space. 
Well, I don't know how you keep all the plates spinning <laughs> and also still managing. I mean, you know, you do have some current artists that you are working with. Um, yeah, I have a great partner. It's it's all about people. It's about putting good people on your team and delegating and being confident in their, their skill set and letting them run. That's awesome. So as far as your the folks that you're currently advising, obviously you and I met a little bit uh, across uh, across the table when, when I was assisting Soundstripe a little bit years ago. Um, you know, Soundstripe and Single are both both really incredible companies with an incredible story behind them. Um, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about those and and about the importance? Yeah, I look. I look for. Yeah, the things I look for are things that are disruptive, that come in and fill a gap in a, in the marketplace. Or I'm not, I don't look for companies that try to reinvent the wheel. I look for disruption. And so, Soundstripe just filled a space that was nobody else was filling uh, in the in the sync business. And there's been several competitors now since then. And singles. You know, single is creating technology where the the record business is finally figuring out that they need to go direct to the consumer. For the longest time, we would sell we'd sell a CD to a fan, and all we know about the fan was that they where they lived, what city. We knew nothing else about them because the barcode would tell us the CD was bought in Nashville, but we didn't know anything. We didn't know their age. Their look, how to contact them, any of that sort of stuff, and we're starting to see that artists are taking more and more control of their careers, and you know, it's not giving away their revenue streams to third parties as much. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, and, and for those who don't know, um, I, I'm going to back up a little bit with regards to Soundstripe. Um, the elevator pitch on this, and, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Scott. Is uh, Soundstripe is is a is a company that provides content that provides musical content for creators and uh, and for creators right. on a subscription basis, which is which is I think one of the things that really revolutionized their offering. And I when yes when I first learned of them, that was the thing to me that I thought, you know, while we're on a transactional business in licensing almost everywhere, um, the concept that a content creator could could apply, could apply basically have a small annual fee they paid for access to a massive evolving catalog, I think was, was the value proposition there. Well, I think, I think you know, I've, all these things are convergence and the convergence was as more people were creating content, they had no idea about sync licensing. They would know they wouldn't know how to get hold of a publisher. And publisher for a lot of these these artists, I mean these content creators was never going to return their call because the fees were so low. So we democratized those things so that if you're a guy that's making Instagram posts, you could get you could get great music to go in your posts and not be in violation of copyright. No, I think that's incredibly valuable in the space and obviously also providing opportunity for for local producers and artists uh, to make money, which is. Yeah, the end of the we day, pay our we, we pay our our contractors. So a lot of our guys make a really good living just creating music. I don't have to worry about. That's, that's not getting paid. 
So pivoting over to single, and you mentioned a little bit the direct-to-fan piece there, but I think the really interesting thing that you, know, that you and I have discussed historically with regards to single is, is not only their Shopify integration for the direct-to-fan thing, but also their attention to the NFT in a time when right. this music business, we're all trying to figure NFTs out. Um, yeah. Web3 and NFT are, are, are the panel topics du jour. At this moment. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that's exciting about single is the data collection. You know, single will allow you to, you know, query up the top 50 art, 50 fans in Nashville, how, what they spent their money on, where they live, what size they wear, things you information you can't get any other way. So it really lets you build a strong relationship with your fans. Which then, of course, you can put your management hat on and speak to the fact that once you have that information, there are actionable items in the local markets, correct? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, we're at a point now, if you have 10,000 great fans, you can make a nice living as an artist if you know how to market. Yeah, or, or, or a thousand, the, the, the old true fan principle um, yeah. that I, I've always loved. 10,000 is better than a thousand. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Very cool. Are there any other um, tech companies that you're working with that you'd like to talk about um, before we move on to your, to yeah. some of your other items? Yeah, there's a the company, another disrupt company that I really love is this company called Rocket Songs, which allows if you, as you know, in most publishing catalogs, 10 percent of the songs make all the money. So if you have a catalog of a thousand songs, a hundred of them make all the money. There's 900 songs that are just collecting dust. It's the same concept that Soundstripe got started with. And so Rocket Songs allows you as a songwriter to upload your content and artists from all over the world can download that, can take those, those songs and record them. So it's created a marketplace, a global marketplace for songs. You know, somebody like Warner Chapel probably has 2 million songs in its library that have never been monetized. That's crazy. It's crazy to think about that. But I mean, it, coming from publishing, I remember I, re, I remember the dormant catalog and, and yeah. the question. Of, and, you, and you know and how how it works. An artist holds lots of songs. They decide what they're going to cut. Sometimes songs just don't get cut because there's another song that's like it. And there's a lot of gems in catalogs. And it it is on a labor, it's hard to pitch all those. But if you have a platform where the world can come in and sift through and pick those songs, there's revenue to be made. Uh, that's that's very cool. More more democratization of the music, I see. I, I'm seeing a little yes. bit of a, a trend here with you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I want artists to make every penny they can. And it it's hard to get songwriters to realize that what you create, once you create it, emotionally it becomes a widget let's how do we monetize that widget yeah that's a don't get your don't get your knickers in a twist about it just let people respond to the music that's very cool what a what a what a great ethos to run on um so looking towards the future musically what you're seeing you know what uh, what's got your blood boiling right now in a good way what's got it pumping what, what's exciting you about the future of music and the future of this industry that we're we're in that we've dedicated our lives to I, I, for me i think the live performance is coming back strong i think people are it's great if you hear some artists on tiktok but then you go see them live and you go it's awful 
And I think you're start you're going to see artists that ha- that can perform and give people an experience, an emotional and physical experience, are the artists that are going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm also noticing myself the prevalence of more rock in, in yes. the popular in the in, in the popular space. Um, you know, you obviously you you've you've been been through it basically every genre, but kind of core to everything you've worked on in your early career, rock and roll was 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 a big piece of that. Yeah, I was at it was funny. I was at Guitar Center about two weeks ago, and I asked the. I stopped to get a piece of gear for one of my clients and I, I spoke to a couple of the salesmen. I go, how's business? They go, man, it's booming. Kids are coming in and wanting to play guitar and drums and it's such a healthy thing for kids well, to be involved in music. I'm hoping that 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 bodes well for our future. Well, I, I think, you know, the, the pandemic did a lot of did a lot of harm to this industry. But at the same time, I think music instrument sales were at an all time high through the pandemic yeah. people taking up new instruments and taking on new challenges um, in, in some of the dormant time that they had. So it's just, yeah, I think the biggest challenge is record companies need to get back to building artist careers and quit looking at numbers, you know, get talented people who can see the vision artist has learn how to make that vision come true and you'll have successful artists, not just look at how many spins they have on a single that may not translate into anything else. We need real artists, people who this is what they this is the only thing they can do with their lives. That's a really interesting point. You know, I when I talk to people that are in A and R, the increasing focus is on platforms like TikTok, and and you know, grabbing the next zeitgeist off of TikTok and trying to, I think in a lot of cases, trying to make you know, someone who, who caught the wave, an artist versus yeah. taking an artist and helping them be a better artist. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, I, I had lunch with someone from one of the major agency yesterday and they've been burned a bunch of times because they've signed artists. They've signed as someone that had a song or two on TikTok. Nobody will buy tickets for it because there's no emotional connection to it. Yeah. It's, it, it's a wild, wild world we're living in, in that sense. Yeah. Outside of the outside of the A and R issues uh, uh, of the labels, um, I have to ask, and I've asked everybody we've talked to the same question: What do you think industry wide is the biggest challenge facing us? Um, I certainly, certainly, the artist side of things is important, and and is something that you know, getting back to you know the hair on the back of your neck principle helping with right. some of the signings um, is important. But, but do you, you know, if you were to, if you had all, all the power in the world and you could change anything about this industry uh, and what would you say the biggest thing for us to overcome is in 2022? I would give them a big dose of patience. Because yeah. you know, the whole industry. Yeah. Because so many times you look at the great artists that we grew up with, sometimes they didn't happen until the third record. You know, sometimes so many of these companies now it's about shareholder stock price and people aren't patient to let things percolate. Sometimes it takes some time and higher. You know, when you and I were growing up, there were a lot of great A&R guys that knew how to bring out the best in artists and they had great marketing guys and there's patience in developing an artist career. And we're kind of not in that world right now. It's coming back, I think. Yeah, I think our I think labels are starting to realize that longevity is to their advantage. 
Well, because catalog sells. I mean, the catalog is carrying the industry right now. The yeah. of the of the artists that you managed. I mean, Alanis was when you when you got her. I mean, that record was was hot fire. Was there anything that you worked with as a manager that that patience applied in that you're really proud of? Her, because when I met I met her two years before Jagged Little Pill even came out. Okay, I, I had, sorry, I, I had assumed you came okay. on closer no, to the release I, of Jagged Little I was, um, she originally was signed to a Canadian company and had a couple pop records in Canada. It was very successful. And I became friends with her publisher and her publisher said, hey, you manage Paula. Let's put, would you see if we could put out Alanis's records in America? And I listened to him and I said, look, we've got Paula, we got Janet Jackson, we got Jody Watley, we got... 12 girls like this um there was just something about her and i said well let's see if she can write her own songs and so we moved her from her home in ottawa where she's living with her parents to a little apartment in toronto and just started putting her with writers and she came to la and sleep on my couch and we just put her with writers and then she wrote with glenn ballard and that kind of opened the door and glenn after the second time said hey call me and said hey look this girl's special. I know we don't have a deal. I own a studio. Let's just make a record. So that's what we did. That was the process. We were just making a record till we got a deal. It's so incredible. And these are the stories that, that give me butterflies about the industry, you know? Um, yeah. Alanis is that record, Jagged Little Pill, to me, the songwriting, the depth of the material in it was what made it special. It was one of the first records in my life that was, you know, I felt like was written for me, for my generation, for. Yeah, I, I also think it, it also was the first time a woman was saying those kind of things. Yeah, in, in, in a lot of ways, I, I think she she busted a bit of a glass ceiling with regards to what women were allowed to say in rock and roll. Well, I think she also proved to the industry that a woman could make them lots of money. I mean, they, you know, she just wasn't a little pretty faced who was going to go dance around the stage. I uh, was not who she was. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Any other, any other uh, anecdotal stories from, from those early times in management that you care to share with us today? I really, you know, the whole, the whole goal here is to introduce you to, to our listener and, and, uh, and, but I, I'm one of those people that I, I just love the history of the business and music. I love the people who came before us and the stories that they have to share. So anything that comes to mind, that uh, you'd like to impart on us with regards to your management? Yeah, I think sometimes. Yeah, I think sometimes when that when it's happening, you're in the middle of it. You don't really realize how big it is until it's till you step back. You know that record's at 38 million units and it's still selling today, and it's gold and platinum in every country in the world. Which Incredible is hard to believe when you look back at it now. Well, but truly timeless music, you know, that those yeah. songs are evergreens at this point. It was funny. I hadn't listened to the record in a couple of years and I went worked out in the gym about two months ago and I put it on. I go, wow, this thing still holds up. Yeah. Well, you got to wonder if a lot of the stuff happening today is going to hold up in 20, 30 years. Yeah. So time there'll be tell. some gems. There'll be some things that will. 
I think I think the pop stuff will be harder to hold up. So interesting, uh, interesting, interesting to think about for sure. Um, so this is the point in the in in the interview where we normally ask a couple of final questions. Um, these are a little sure. lighter lighter fare for you. Um, there's no right or wrong answer here, though I'll judge depending on what you say. Um, yes. And so uh, the first question here is. What's your favorite current band or artist that you're listening to? What's what's the thing that's just really got you going? And and I will I'll throw another caveat in that you don't manage. Yeah, got it. That's that's cheating if you get to name your own band. Yeah, I know. I, I think for me it just depends on what day what day of the week it is and what time of day it is. And you know, I'm kind of these I'm a guy that gets up in the morning, I can turn acdc on 10 i'm ready to go uh so it depends um i think you know i, I think because we had earth wind and fire i really like bruno mars and the, the silk sonic record it's just brings me back to that sort of feeling um and there's a lot of really good young rock acts out there i think that are bubbling under you know um everybody from uh Oh my God! Oh, you know you're going to ask me that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, band Camino, bands like that, they're interesting. Um, Olivia Rodrigo, I feel like is Atlantis a little bit. You know, it feels like she kind of has that same sort of vibe. Listen to interviews and hear her talk. Stuff well, she, that. Those are the kind of things. Definitely trailblazing for right now, for this moment, musically. Yeah, which I, I think we. Yeah, can I'm all. a sucker. I'm, I, I, it has to be musical for me. It has to have melody for me. I struggle with some things that aren't melodic to like. If I can't sing it or hear it in my head, then I probably it's probably not something I'm listening to. Yeah, that's what when I was in publishing, we we referred to that as a sticky hook. If it doesn't have yeah. a sticky hook, what's the point? You know. Um, yeah. That's yeah. That's all great. So final final question here for you, sir. And this is uh, this is maybe the hardest question I've asked you this entire time. But pizza or Chinese food? What would be your choice? Nothing better than a really good pizza margarita. <laughs> all right, all right. There we have it. Um, well, thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure to have you on today and uh, share your pearls of wisdom. You know, you've certainly done so many great things in the music industry and you continue to, to give back at, at every turn. And so it's just really lovely to have you here and to Thanks. hear some of these stories. And um, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of creative people and you don't do it on your own. You have lots of help have support from family, you have support from other people. I'm a big believer that you take a meeting with everybody, you talk to everybody, you never know. I got helped along the way so many ways. And so I kind of have that same approach with everybody I talk to. Well, that, that's awesome. And we appreciate you being here and taking this meeting today. Um, and so thank you again so very much, my friend. And uh, once again, friends, this is Music Industry 360. I'm Randall Foster. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Symphonic, and uh, it's our distinct pleasure to be here with you today. Stick around for upcoming episodes here uh, coming soon. Thank you. Make sure you get my check out today, okay? You know. <laughs> it's in the mail. It's in the mail. Thanks, brother. All See right. You. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye.